and welcome to the Winter Doldrums podcast here at The Voice of the Arts with your host, Joe Weber. We're going to begin with an audio clip from the film Fahrenheit 451, directed by Francois Truffaut and taken from a novel written by Ray Bradbury, published in 1953. The story centers around a troubling future in which books are completely banned, and if discovered, they are burned by a fire department, which is headed by a fire chief. In this audio clip from the Truffaut film, we hear the fire chief, played by British actor Cyril Connolly, delivering the justification for why the books must be burned. He delivers his speech to Montag, played by German actor Oscar Werner, who has been secretly reading some of the books that in his job as a fireman, he has been tasked with confiscating. Ah, Montag. I knew it. I knew it. Of course, all this... The existence of a secret library was known in high places, but there was no way of getting at it. Only once before have I seen so many books in one place. I was just an ordinary fireman at the time. I wasn't even qualified to use the flamethrower. It's all ours, Montag. Listen to me, Montag. Once to each fireman, at least once in his career, he just itches to know what these books are all about. He just aches to know, isn't that so? Well, take my word for it, Montag. There's nothing there. The books have nothing to say. Look, these are all novels. All about people that never existed. The people that read them and makes them unhappy with their own lives, makes them want to live in other ways that can never really be. What's happening? This house is condemned. They're said to burn the books right here with everything else. Well, burning the house is one thing. Burning the books is another, isn't it? It's never any good burning everything together. Come on, Montag. All this philosophy. Let's get rid of it. It's even worse than the novels. Thinkers, philosophers, all of them saying exactly the same thing, only I am right. The others are all idiots. One century, they, they tell you man's destiny is predetermined. The next, they'll say that he has freedom of choice. Oh, it's just a matter of fashion, that's all, philosophy. Just like short dresses this year, long dresses next year. Look, all stories of the day. Biography, that's called. And autobiography. My life, my diary, my memoirs, my... Intimate memoirs. Of course, when they started out, well, it was just the urge to write. Then after the second or third book, all they wanted was to satisfy their own vanity, to stand out from the crowd, to be different, to be able to look down on all the others. Ah, critics' prize. Ah, this is a good one. Of course, he had the, the critics on his side, lucky fellow. Just tell me this, Montag, at a guess. How many literary awards would you say were made in this country on an average each year? Five, ten, forty, hmm? No less than 1,200. Why, anybody that put pen to paper was bound to win some prize someday. 
Ah, Robinson Crusoe. The Negroes didn't like that because of his man, Friday. And Nietzsche. Ah, Nietzsche. The Jews didn't like Nietzsche. Ah, here's a book about lung cancer. You see, all the cigarette smokers got into a panic, so for everybody's peace of mind, we burn it. Ah, now this one must be very profound. The Ethics of Aristotle. Now, anybody that read that must believe he's a cut above anybody that hadn't. See, it's, it's no good, Montag. We've all got to be alike. The only way to be happy is for everyone to be made equal. So, we must burn the books, Montag. All the books.
We just heard Sergei Rachmaninoff's Prelude Number no. 23 in G minor, performed by the composer himself. And I'm sure that Sergei Rachmaninoff had very high standards in terms of his performance. Some folks consider themselves perfectionists, and their high standards make their lives very difficult for them. Let's listen now to a piece written by Jack Handy called Lowering My Standards. Lowering My Standards by Jack Handy. As you may have heard, I have very high standards. When people see me do something, they often shake their heads in disbelief. That's how high my standards are. But lately, I've been wondering if maybe they're not too high. Am I pushing myself too hard? Do I always have to be the one everybody looks up to? Are my high standards hurting my happiness and things like that? Why, for instance, do I always have to be the first one to show up at a party and the last one to leave? And while I'm at the party, is it really so important that I tell the dirtiest joke? A lot of times I'm the only one telling a dirty joke, so it's not even that big an accomplishment. And if someone else does tell a dirty joke, why do I feel compelled to tell one that's even dirtier and more graphic? Just so I can be number one? Why do I sometimes feel like I should get a job or do some kind of work? Does thinking about maybe getting a job make me better than other people? Am I worried that if I quit borrowing money from my friends, they'll think I'm stuck up? Why do I have to be the honest one? Do people really want you to be that honest about how old they look or how big their breasts are? At every get-together, why do I have to do my funny cowboy dance? Why not do a dance that isn't so demanding, like my funny robot dance or just funny prancing? Is it really my responsibility that half-empty glasses of beer not be wasted? Whenever there's a scary sound at night, why do I have to do all the screaming? Maybe somebody else can scream and cry and, and beg for mercy for a change. Would the world really fall apart if I didn't point out to people which are the regular goldfish and which are the bug-eyed ones? Let them figure it out on their own. Why does it have to be me who ends up asking how much someone paid for something? Everyone's curious. Could a sock really be a parachute for a mouse? Maybe not, but does that mean I... <laughs> Could a sock really be a parachute for a mouse? Maybe not, but does that mean I have to stand up in the middle of the movie theater and start booing? Why do I always have to be the one who sums up what was just said or explain to the children what hell is or calls the meeting to order? These are all questions I would never even have asked myself until the incident with Don. Every day, my friend Don and I would see who could trip each other the most times. But then one day, I tripped him, and he fell and broke his jaw. He looked up and with slurred speech said, I guess you win. But what did I win? I didn't win anything. And you know why? because I forgot to make a bet with him. But something else was wrong, and I knew it. Why did I want to trip Don in the first place? To show how clever I was, or how brave, or, or how successful? Yes, all of those things, so I guess that answers that. Still, something about it bothered me. I decided to drive up to a cabin in the mountains. For a week, all I did was sit and think and watch a lot of television. How, I agonized during the commercial breaks, did I get such high standards? Was it something from my childhood or my fraternityhood? Was it from another lifetime when I was in another fraternity? I wondered if my high standards were leading me to a heart attack. 
Then I thought, yes, but it'll be the biggest heart attack anyone's ever had. I wondered if it was even possible for a person like me to lower his standards. Then I wondered if they still make Bosco. I became so confused and frustrated, I began smashing things in the cabin. I wound up running headlong into the woods in panic when the people who owned the cabin suddenly showed up. As I drove back to civilization, as you squares call it, I had already made a momentous decision. I would keep thinking about the possibility of lowering my standards. Maybe, just maybe, I don't always have to do things so perfectly. Maybe when I ask someone a question, I don't always have to begin it with the words, pray tell. Perhaps I don't have to wear the fanciest fanny pack that money can buy. And when I'm at a dinner party, maybe I don't need to sniff every piece of food before I eat it. In short, perhaps I should worry less about doing the right thing and more about doing the right thing, whatever that means. People may worry, isn't there a danger that if you start lowering your standards, they'll go too low? As far as I'm concerned, they can't go low enough. You've been listening to Lowering My Standards, written by Jack Handy in a collection called What I'd Say to the Martians. Start talking. Uh, I was sent by a friend of Johnny Fontaine. His friend is my client. Would give his undying friendship to Mr. Walsk. If Mr. Walsk would grant us a small favor. Walsk is listening. Give Johnny the part in that new war film you're starting next week. <laughs> and uh, what favor would uh, your friend uh, grant, Mr. Walsk? You're going to have some union problems. My client could make them disappear. Also, one of your top stars has just moved from uh, marijuana to heroin. Are you trying to muscle me? Absolutely no, not. To me, you smooth-talking son of a bitch. Let me lay it on the line for you and your boss, whoever he is. Johnny Fontaine will never get that movie. I don't care how many Dago, Guinea, Wap, Greaseball, Goombas come out of the woodwork. I'm German-Irish. Well, let me tell you something, my Kraut Mick friend. I'm going to make so much trouble for you, you won't know what Mr. hit you. Mr. Walsh, I'm a lawyer. I have not threatened I know almost every big lawyer in New York. Who the hell are you? I have a special practice. I handle one client. Now, you have my number. I'll wait for your call. By the way, I admire your pictures very much. Check them out. This used to decorate the palace of a king. Oh, yeah. Very nice. Why don't you say you work for Corleone, Tom? I thought you were just some cheap two-bit hustler Johnny was running in trying to bluff me. I don't want to use his name unless it's really necessary. How's your drink, Tom? Fine. Hey, come on over here with me. I want to show you something really beautiful. You do appreciate beauty, don't you? $600,000 on four hooks. I'll bet Russian Tsar's never paid that kind of dough for a single horse. 
Khartoum. Khartoum. I'm not going to race him, though. I'm going to put him out to stud. Thanks, Tony. Welcome. Let's get something to eat, huh? Corleone, Johnny's godfather. To the Italian people, that's a very religious, sacred, close relationship. I respect that. Just tell him he should ask me anything else. But this is one favor I can't give him. Well, he never asks a second favor when he's been refused the first. Understood? You don't understand. Johnny Fontaine never gets that movie. That part is perfect for him. It'll make him a big star. Now I'm going to run him out of the business. Then let me tell you why. Johnny Fontaine ruined one of Walt's International's most valuable protégés. For five years, we had her under training, singing lessons, acting lessons, dancing lessons. I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on her. I was going to make her a big star. And let me be even more frank. Just to show you that I'm not a hard-hearted man, that it's not all dollars and cents. She was beautiful. She was young. She was innocent. She was the greatest piece of ass I've ever had, and I've had them all over the world. And then Johnny Fontaine comes along with his olive oil voice and Guinea charm. And she runs off. She throw it all away just to make me look ridiculous. And a man in my position can't afford to be made to look ridiculous. Now you get the hell out of here. And if that goomba tries any rough stuff, you tell him I ain't no band leader. Yeah. I heard that story. Thank you for the dinner and a very pleasant evening. Maybe your car could take me to the airport. Mr. Corleone is a man who insists on hearing bad news immediately. That sequence from the film The Godfather was evidently taken from real life, and the Johnny Fontaine character was based on Frank Sinatra. According to Mario Puzo, who wrote the book The Godfather, the incident involved Sinatra using mob connections to intimidate one of the heads of the major studios, Columbia Pictures to be exact, and I think at that time it must have been Harry Cohn, who stayed head of production at Columbia until 1957. He had one of the longest tenures of any studio heads. The film in question was From Here to Eternity which takes place in Hawaii just prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor and features the lives of three soldiers, including Angelo Maggio, the character played by Frank Sinatra, which won him an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Clift, Donna Reed, and Deborah Kerr were also in this star-studded cast. The film won eight additional Oscars, including Best Screenplay, Best Direction, and Best Picture. The comment made by the fictional studio head Jack Waltz that he was no bandleader was a reference to clarinetist bandleader Artie Shaw, who was also intimidated by Sinatra and his pals when Shaw began dating Ava Gardner, who had been in a relationship with the singer. Let's listen now to a wonderful singer named Claudio Vila. Tavotin tosti brach, 
quella casa in un porta caccia fa voglio che sto occhio voglio che sta faccia adocere d'ogni felicità suono da vita mia di mappa quale via taccio venendo sempre a fianco a me si sicure che sta amore con mi so sicure te 
amore o prima l'ultimo sarai per me quanta notte non te vedo non te senti in tasti braccia non te passa che sta faccia non te stregna forte in braccia a me ma se danno ma sti suona me vai chiangere Prima l'ultimo sarai per me. Scrive sempre sta contenta e non pensa che a te sola e non pensi a me consola che tu pensi solamente a me. A chi ho belle tutte belle non è mai chi ho belle te. L'ultimo sarai per me, oi vita, oi vita mia, oi cuore, chi stupore, chi si stata, o prima amore, o prima l'ultimo sarai per me. Clario Villa with Sordato Nemorato, and before that we heard Torna. <laughs> Folks, thanks for listening. This is Joe Weber saying so long here from the Voice of the Arts. Mm-hmm.